I know. Look at this. The Beam Radio gang. I know. It's, it's I super fun. Oh. So much regret in that comment, Alex. I can hear people now. <laughs> I've got a whole, you guys, I started a whole website that I used to maintain. Let's see if I can find it. Awesome. Actually, Sophie, I think this this is probably one of the first things I saw saw from you. And oh, I really? think I even sent an email to you once you never heard of Oh, shit. I probably did not answer it. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Bean Radio. All right. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio. Uh, I am Sophie Benedetto. I am joined today by Lars Wickman. Hey, Lars. Hello, hello. Welcome. And Stephen Nunez. Hi, Stephen. Hello. As well as the one and only Alex Kumos. Hey, Alex. Hey, howdy, howdy. It's really nice to see you all. Um, I know I had to miss, I think, the last episode that we recorded. We only record every other week, so it feels like forever. Since I've seen all of your smiling faces, um, welcome back, everybody. So I don't think uh, we have too many announcements before we jump into our main topic here. So I'm actually just going to go ahead and hand it over to today's host with the most, and that's Lars. Tell us what's on your mind. All right. So first, I'll I'll briefly apologize for any weirdness in my voice. I'm uh, recovering from a cold and. that might be noticeable in the recording. Now, the topic is not specific to Elixir Erlang or the beam, which is, I'm sure, quite upsetting to many. Oh my God, I just heard everyone pause the podcast. I'm out of here. I mean, mean, this is very, very all Elixir, so much live view. Um, No, but if if you've followed anything I do, uh, it might be clear that I also write about especially the newsletter, I write about a lot of sort of developer life and developer life adjacent things. And I wanted to get into what the most important device and learnings you've had in your career is with regards to becoming a professional developer. And that's, that's pretty wide. So I figure we'll, we'll try to pick out particular facets and sort of dive into those. So first of all, maybe you can all mention a little bit about when you realized you were a professional developer. Am I a professional developer? Um, I'll let you know when it happens, right? Yeah, I'll let you know when I feel like a professional developer. And I think that this is the theme that um, I don't know. I feel like it's going to resonate with you guys. Uh, I always thought that there would be this moment when I would finally realize that I was a professional developer, that I felt like that I was good enough. And don't get me wrong. It's not all bleak. Like there are, there are good days where I know that I am good enough and I am qualified and things are going well. Uh, but that feeling that, you know, there's that little bit of imposter syndrome maybe will never go away. But also that feeling that, you know, there's still so much out there that I don't know is not wrong. Uh, and I think that this idea that you'll get to this point in your career where you're basically done learning, you know, all the things you could ever possibly need to know, you know, take me out of the oven. I don't think that that ever happens, but I'm curious to hear other people's answer to this question too. I had a feeling that I was a professional developer at age, I think it was like 12 or 13 when I was developing TI-83 uh, you know, calculator programs. 
And I was like disseminating them across the, uh, you know, the sixth or seventh grade or whatever. And everyone was using my programs for the exams. I had a feeling there that I was a professional developer. <laughs> Certain from an early age, no imposter syndrome at all. Perfect. Yeah, the problem was that uh, I initially wrote those like calculator programs to avoid like studying for the exams. But then I got so familiar with the uh, like the the content of the exam that I didn't need my programs anyways. So it's kind of a the the lazy programmer in me got me to where I needed to go, and I didn't even know it. Yeah, productive procrastination is what I call that. Where like I don't want to study for permaculture stuff because I'm exhausted. And I was like, I'll write some code, and then in the end, I wind up with two good things, I guess, but late definitely on the other thing. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, but, when did I know? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was it. So I mean, the, but but seriously, yeah, to, uh, to, to kind of like Sophie, right? Like, uh, I don't know if I ever have really felt like a professional programmer in like a, a business kind of sense. I don't know. It's weird. I, uh, I I did a lot of programming as a kid on the calculator. Uh, you know, as a teenager, I was always reformatting my machine with the latest, uh, you know, Linux distro. Uh, you know jumped around from language to language. I think Elixir is probably the language I've stuck around in the most. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Given how big software and, and programming is as like a, an ecosystem in a space and how many facets there are, I've never really felt like I've become like a quote-unquote professional or a master or anything at the, at the craft, given that there's just so much to do. I mean, perhaps, you know, we've become professionals in one aspect of it, but yeah, I don't know if I'd ever say that I'm a professional software engineer because if you throw me in like a php code base i'm just as good as a junior right so what are those criteria for being a professional i think one of the common ones is is getting paid but steven how's your journey been on this yeah i think about that a lot like is it do you become professional when you've convinced someone else that you're worth giving money to solve a problem like i consider myself a technologist so before i i got into software development i was in network security and then before that um a lot of just like technical things um then eventually went to sort of like a vocationalish school that no longer exists um to be, get into network security and server administration and all that fun stuff. But the second somebody said, yeah, I'll trust this person with SSH access. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm in, <laughs> I'm a something. Um, but pretty, pretty early on, I mean, the, that first experience with other people who have been doing it for a while is very enlightening because you get um, sort of introduced to not just the, the people and the characters, but also their, styled towards being technologists. Uh, I had a lot of access to um, different role models and reverse role models um, that I think about to this day. I mean, I, I used to, uh, the programmers who were around me were um, sort of like the, the nightmare version of what I don't want to become very much into the, the language they, they use, the technology of the time, and there's zero interest in growth because what I'm doing now works. And then I had a very, very strong role model. Um, I'll call him out because this is a Beam Radio, uh, Beam Radio, and he's in network security. We'll probably never hear this, but I like this guy. His name is Ray Santos, a very good friend of mine. Um, and uh, he was an incredible role model in the beginning because you would see um, that he was always studying something unrelated to his job. He was interested more in knowing what was happening and sort of having a handle on the movement of technology than the actual technology that he worked on. He was good at that, but then he was also good at stuff that was like 
like I remember when Node.js came out, he's like, hey, have you heard of this like Node.js thing? Um, his judgment may be not always great, but he did know that Node.js was coming out and like became familiar with a lot of the stuff. And he wasn't even a programmer, just sort of like interested in sort of the happenings and event-driven systems. Um, and I, I think that that was, I, I feel most professional because I think it's like a spectrum. I feel most professional when I feel like I'm kind of consuming and I'm, I'm on the treadmill at the right pace because um, the treadmill is insane, right? It's like, it's super fast in tech. It never stops, right? Uh, some things reach stability, but if you asked me to put together a, like a graph database for you right now and build an app based on those concepts, I'd be completely lost. So like, as long as there's, I'm, there's movement, I feel good. I feel professional. You know, I'm reading books. I'm getting better at like progressing my concept of what good code is. I'm reading stuff. I'm getting better at giving feedback. It's like, it's about the progress. It's almost like a, I'm not going to, uh, calculating a derivative. Oh God, I hate myself right now. Uh, where the value is in the movement, not in the point. So you, we are constantly being professionals. Sorry. I was going making to do a calculus with, joke. <laughs> I was going to go with uh, that you're, you're a shark developer. You, if you stop, you die. That's yes, I like that. I like that. Sharkdeveloper.com. Someone doesn't snag that up. You're missing out. But also... I think there's a lot to what you're saying there with regards to it's not necessarily a level you achieve. Like this is a disappointing part about grown-up life in general. Like I, I expected large companies to have their stuff together and I expected uh, people that work professionally to to know what they're doing and I expected people to be good at their jobs and that kind of thing. And that's, you find highs and lows. All across, all across the adult world, unfortunately. And when it comes to sort of development, if you're just doing fun projects for your own enjoyment, it really doesn't matter how you're doing them at all. Uh, but what we're talking about with being a professional is about doing paid work. And I think the absolute definition of being a professional developer is that someone is paying you to produce software or do software development. I got in through a very sort of loose and informal channel and started in the very webmastery end of web development. And I already knew sort of how to build custom PHP systems. And I got a soft start with setting up some CMSs and stuff which meant for me, I never, <laughs> and it was just me for a long time. So I never doubted that I could do the thing all that much. With time, I've come to realize more and more how little I know, but I've also become more comfortable with, with that my skill is probably more about learning. Like what you're talking about, Stephen, it's more important that you have a good process and that you are evolving than necessarily what exact level you're at. I think there's a threshold where you can start to feel more conf confident as a programmer specifically, like, oh, I can wield my programming language to a level of proficiency that I, I feel like I could build most web apps. And I think all of us are at that level. Like if I, if I grab one of you one day and like, ah, I need a web app stat. Um, all of you could probably 
pick up Phoenix and swing together a good web app for for essentially an any arbitrary purpose as long as it's within reason. And that I think is a good indicator of sort of a certain level of maturity with a programming language. But there's there's so much more than programming that comes into it. So one of my one of my soft spots is sort of productivity and this whole trying to organize yourself or organize your team or sort of managing responsibility and making sure things get done and keeping keeping your eye on the ball that kind of thing what has been your experiences getting into software development and and trying to be a professional with regards to getting the work done you know i think for me it's um Productivity is a really challenging topic for me to grapple with because I feel that I tend to maybe sometimes get a little obsessive about the programming work that I'm doing. And I think it started when I was first learning how to code and it, and it has served me well, like this quality, right? It, it has contributed to sort of how far I've come in my career in a relatively short time, but you know, it, it also is not always healthy. But when I was first learning how to code, I was totally hooked. So I did um go through the programming program at the Flatiron School which our listeners may know because I talk about it not infrequently and when I first applied and decided to do this career change and do this three-month program I was kind of just rolling the dice right like I had done a little bit of coding on some of these online I did like a code academy I learned html and css I started playing around with ruby and I thought okay, I think I like this enough to try to make, you know, a career out of it, make a profession out of it. But then when I started the program and I was coding every day, I didn't just like it enough to start a job out of it. I was completely hooked. I wanted to solve every single problem, you know, falling asleep at night with your computer on your chest because you're just trying to debug one thing. And that helped me a lot, especially in that early stage when I was learning and kind of ramping up on all these new skills. Um, And I think it helps me to this day. I've kind of developed a love for programming as an art, as a craft. Um, You know, I I think there's definitely a beauty to it. And it it has a lot of commonalities with other creative pursuits. Um, So I think I've carried that into my professional life. And that's great because it means that I learn things and that I solve hard problems for the companies that pay me to do exactly that. Um, And it also means that I tend to take on a lot in side my day job and outside of it. And it also means that sometimes I have a really hard time, especially in all of our new remote uh, worlds, I have a hard time closing the computer at night and kind of walking away and feeling like I can say that something is done. And that kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, which is that, well, nothing's ever done because you're never done learning and nothing's ever perfect. So I struggle um, trying to find that balance between like when this passion serves me well and when it's going to kind of drain me and take time away from, you know, other things in life. Yeah, I think a lot about the, um, so I have a big focus on, on learning and growth, totally geared by my crippling anxiety of, of you hey, know, what? falling That's behind. I can't relate to that at all. Yeah, no, not at all. It's very unique to me and no one else feels this. No one um, else. And the way I sort of stay um, productive in that sense, not, not in a team perspective, but sort of like on an individual perspective is I... I chase where the excitement is. And I, I can hear that, as I say, this, that's kind of dangerous, right? You're always chasing the next shiny thing, but it tends to be pretty persistent on like what 
it is either a domain I'm trying to solve or something that I'm interested in. And even if I drop over to this you know, domain, learn just a little bit, learn the language, learn the perspective, learn the philosophy a little bit, and then never visit it again, I do feel that I've been enriched in some way. Um, but you know, I remember when I was first getting started in Elixir, bringing it back, um, the, the, what I did was I would watch a video. I would, you know, do, I was at Flatiron school at the time. So I would do some of like our Ruby exercises in it and then I would get bored. And then I'd go and watch like, there were no podcasts at the time, but I would go and like look through code. And then I would listen to watch another video. I'd actually watch videos multiple times, um, just to kind of like always be in the, like be around it, be surrounded by it. Kind of like that concept of like, you are what your like phone home screen is. Like those are the apps you're going to go to often is you're going to learn the things that you're constantly surrounding yourself with. And it was just like, I think about it as like taking small nibbles of like, what's interesting and like chasing that bit of interest. Um, you know, recently I've gotten into sort of like team productivity. And so in my previous life, not the network security one, but the one before, um, when I got into programming, I was an, an agile consultant. I know everyone just went, ugh, no, it was fine. Um, and a lot of it was sort of like getting into teams, understanding their processes and understanding where they, uh, where there was friction and where there was like over communication or under communication or, you know, how just struct ch changing the structure of a couple of things could make things better. And I've become really interested in that for like my team at GitHub. So I've gone back into like, that's I'm doing that spiral now. I'm reading James Shore's Art of Agile version two. Go get that. That's pretty good. Um, been talking to a lot of my old consulting friends and just kind of like, you know, having back and forth with them and then just having that circle just be on this one concept, taking a little bit, applying a little bit, coming back and then looping around. And so, yeah, that's that my productivity basically is, is surrounded by these like these tight loops of just like just be doing something around this thing, write about it, read about it have a conversation with someone that you, you know, you like about it, talk about it on a podcast, you know, that's definitely a, a good, uh, good piece of advice there, Steven, definitely surround yourself with things that uh, can help move you forward. Even if you don't understand those things at the time, you, you, it's kind of fascinating what your brain will, will store in like the subconscious area. And then for whatever reason, it'll come up later and you'll, you'll draw the connection. Or it'll be a lot easier. So yeah, I could definitely, definitely plus one listening to conference talks, listening to uh to podcasts even if they aren't in your uh you know, your, your domain that you're currently in right like I, I used to listen to a lot of uh devops podcasts and you know even though i wasn't really doing much with you know kubernetes or istio those things stuck with me and i at least when i come across them now they're familiar and i know what they are and roughly what they do although those things are constantly changing so yeah definitely like immerse yourself into things that interest you even if they are uh, not necessarily directly related to what you're working on, but, um, yeah, I definitely also like to you know, read a lot of books and I try to set some time aside usually every day. My, my, my minimum is like, if I could read 10 pages a day, that's a good, uh, you know, I, I met my, my threshold for books and that's, you know, entrepreneurial books, uh, you know, Elixir books or, you know, any other kind of language or programming. So, a little, you know, small steps every day, 10 pages may not seem like a lot, but over the course of a year, that's, you know, that's almost 10 or 10 or 12 programming textbooks. So if you're able to make small steps every day and be just a little bit better than you were yesterday, that's a, a good way to propel yourself forward to professionalism. And this kind of reminds me of something that, you know, I think people do ask me a lot, uh, especially when they're just starting out in their career. And it's, 
the general topic of, you know, what should I be learning? What should I be doing? But the way that it comes out the most is from, you know, anxious people looking for their first programming job who feel that they have to learn everything. Okay, well, you know, I need to learn Django and Python because like I saw a couple of job listings that said that you should know that. I need to brush up on my CS algorithms for the whiteboarding interview questions. And I need to, you know, and they'll come at you with this laundry list, absolute laundry list of things that they have been made to feel that for whatever reason that they need to know in order to get hired. Um, and I think it's really easy to fall into that trap because first of all, getting your first job is not easy and it's a very stressful position to be in and you're out there looking around and you're seeing qualifications, you know, listed out on these job postings and maybe you've had a couple interviews and you haven't gotten anything yet and you're, all you can see is the holes, all you can see is what you don't know. Um, but what I really recommend doing and what I feel like has really worked for me is just pick one thing that you actually like and care about and want to learn and pursue. And maybe that one thing is like reading this one book and like really diving into it a couple of pages a day at a time, like Alex suggested, or building this one side project, you know, that actually interests you because you're going to dive into either a piece of functionality that excites you or a new technology that excites you. Um, and the more time that you spend, I think, going deeper in a more narrow way when you're a bit earlier on in your career, I think the more you're going to accelerate your growth and find that you are going to land that first job because your passion, your interest, and your ability to learn is going to come across in that interview process. It's, it's impossible to go out there and learn five different web frameworks and all the CS that you didn't learn in college because you didn't go to college or I don't know, like it's not going to happen and it doesn't need to happen. Um, just pick a thing that you actually care about and like and that motivates you to keep learning and, and just do it. And the rest of that stuff is going to come the more work you do. Yeah, I think that's that's very sound advice. And apparently leads to working at GitHub. So I think you have I think you have good credentials in that. <laughs> you heard it from me first. <laughs> Don't yeah, go that's to college straight for computer path to science to work at GitHub. Straight path. Yeah. Yeah. So what you were saying, Stephen, about sort of ingesting a ton of stuff that you don't have use for in what you're doing right now at work, that rhymes a lot with, with my process as well. It's like I'm, I'm interest-driven. That's my personality. Professionally, I tend to do whatever, whatever I'm assigned to do or whatever I think is most important at the time. But my interest will always influence the exact manner in which I tackle it. Sometimes I can't even apply my current interest in my work at all. And then that's also a matter of professionalism to keep my, keep my shinies to the side while I settle this boring bog standard implementation. And eventually I find that almost anything I've been interested in in my entire life will synthesize into something about what I'm doing at some point. It's like, oh, I heard of CRDTs and they seem super interesting. Okay, I don't need them for this. But eventually they might solve a problem. Just that, and that stuff you were talking about, Sophie, where I've gotten the same question. It's like, what should I learn? It's like, oh, uh, how to learn. Sorry, it's, it's, not about, it's not about specific skills. It's not about any of that. It's like how to speak for yourself how to communicate effectively how to make a reliable impression uh, and also prove that you have some programming skill but programming skill is really not the key to landing a job I mean 
you need to pass coding interviews typically as a as a junior uh, i don't personally have experience with that process because i've done network ops throughout my career i have never done a coding interview so i can't advise on it i would also advise avoid them they seem like a pain in the neck if you can get in through building a network building connections that's a nicer way to find work typically and it typically leads to finding work where people understand coming in that you what your experience level is but i don't think everyone can do that just due to like scale <laughs> the number of people out there yeah i don't think programmer productivity or finding that first job neither of them are all about programming skills or programming activities it's mostly about other things but about ingesting a lot of information being able to synthesize that into something useful and being able to make a competent impression not necessarily about your programming skill but in general as a person and that could very well be our our next point making impressions because that's something like doing consulting this guy never never having a, job, <laughs> a, a coding interview look at this guy <laughs> You just made a I lot think, of interviews, um, I'll let you know that much. <laughs> <laughs> How do we do that, right? No more interviews. I do want to pick up on one thing you said, though, Lars, because you said one of my favorite phrases in there. You said learning how to learn. Um, and I think that that is really like the one and only skill that you need to focus on cultivating as a professional programmer, as an engineer. And this is something that I thought a lot about um, back when Steve and I both were teaching at the Flatiron School because we only had our precious students for three months. It's like no time at all. How can you possibly teach someone everything they need to know to be a professional programmer in three months? You basically can't, you cannot. Um, so what you can do is teach them how to be okay with being really uncomfortable and confused. And that's something that I think we became quite good at um, because you know we're confusing and we make people uncomfortable no just kidding because learning how to code is hard and it doesn't necessarily get any easier in fact I think if anything like it's only gotten harder the more I learn you know the more advanced I become in my career the more responsibilities that I take on professionally the harder my job has become and early on kind of being in this environment where I was challenged to learn stuff that I had, you know, no historical knowledge of, no context had never done before with that added pressure of like, can I learn this in three months and get a job? That was the experience that I needed to take away personally from that programming bootcamp. And I think that is what I try whenever I can to cultivate in any students that I'm able to encounter with. Um, you're not going to learn everything you need to learn at any period of time because you're never going to stop learning. So if you can kind of start to sit with that feeling of discomfort, um, a feeling out of your depth, a feeling that there's more out there that you don't know, and, and maybe not even just sit with it, but actually start to seek it out to get excited by that feeling and want to pursue it. Um, I think you're, yeah, you've got it made. Yeah. Okay. Now you got me on the hook. So <laughs> leaning into discomfort, this is a, this is a big one. Uh, I think I've put out a newsletter about this. So the first time you look at application logs from a production environment, it's going to be absolute gibberish. And then you see an error in there. It has a, like a trace back. It has 
it's a it lot of red and it's really scary somewhere and you in don't want to look at it yeah yeah and it's like i just want to throw this up to to anyone else to to, mm-hmm. to solve this couldn't possibly yeah. be, be my problem to tackle but like the information is in there these things are readable they're not nice to read but leaning into sort of these moments of discomfort because you're going to have moments of discomfort pressing the button on a deployment the first mm-hmm. oh maybe I, almost 20, every time i deploy i'm still like you do it. surely this can't possibly work there, surely i a, didn't write some know, code that's going to behave appropriately here there's a good reason it seems like the whole devops world is sort of focusing on release often release early release constantly just wear away the discomfort of releases make sure it's not a concern reach a point where you can release without blinking where you're comfortable that you can recover from problems that kind of thing uh, that's sort of i think a, a way of leaning into discomfort but you're gonna run into discomfort constantly because you're gonna run up to your limits constantly and one way of keeping those limits moving at roughly the same pace that you're you're approaching them uh, is i think what what steven was talking about like constantly ingesting things because then you you might be moving moving those limits out as you go but in the end you're you're going to have to tackle things that you're not comfortable with i've never i've never met a developer that was like oh yeah here's Here's the job. Yeah, I know how to do every piece of this in excruciating detail. It's like, no, half the job is about figuring out how to do it. And I think half of getting the job or half of (laughs) sort of being, giving the impression that you're doing well with the job, because I think you can be doing well and giving a really poor impression of it as well. Uh, But Part of that is building trust in the people that have to rely on your skills. And sort of one of my big things about making that impression and building that trust is if you want to build trust with me, it helps to be fairly transparent. Uh, If I get the sense that we're not communicating about certain things because they are because they're slightly embarrassing, like, oh, I don't know how to do this, uh, so I won't tell you it's a problem. That's a typically a problem for me as a, like a, I don't know, do I call myself a manager? I, so I have a team, uh, but as someone trying to lead a team, I need to know if there are problems, things that are holding people up. I don't actually care that someone has been blocked by something like i just want to know and want to help them move forward because i know i'm blocked by things all the time and someone saying hey i gotten stuck on this this is their message i tried a few things maybe these two uh but i'm not making heads or tails of it uh do you have any suggestions like oh that raises trust while if someone is like ah i'm just gonna like uh yeah yeah um it just took a little bit longer i don't i'm not sure i'm not sure when it's going to be done but uh yeah and sort of trying to avoid talking to me about a thing that's gonna 
lead to me needing to do a, do sort of detective work to figure out if we have a problem or not. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, when I was, uh, so we brought up like our time teaching at Flatiron School. I thought it was really instructive at kind of teaching me how to learn or what, or sort of like mm-hmm. putting me in the mind state of like where I could learn best. And the best advice I would tell students on day one was, listen, I have you for three months or 12 weeks. I need you to be loud and dumb. If you don't understand, there's going to be struggle. You're going to have a hard time, but you'll get this gauge of like where the struggle becomes like not productive, be loud and dumb. The sooner I know you're missing a concept, the sooner we can kind of like get you onto the next stuff, especially early on. I, I always used to tell them, you are, you guys are so boring for the first like three weeks because we're talking about strings and numbers and like methods and arguments and default, whatever, and like nested iteration and all that stuff. I said, when you guys start actually solving problems, that's when, that's where I want you to struggle. So don't struggle with the, you know, what I consider the boring stuff struggle with the right stuff so be loud and dumb you don't know something yell it from the rooftops give someone a chance to explain it to you or just come to me or sophie when we're teaching together and we'll sort of like help you find the answer um but that's a huge thing and i think like you know it's it's hard you have to kind of create an environment so as a manager right you have to create this environment where people feel comfortable seeing that showing um showing that quote-unquote weakness right like a dog at a dog park showing their belly like that they know they're not in trouble they know they're not appearing incompetent and that it's going to be it's going to come up on a performance review can you believe this person did not know how this routing parameter worked no it's it's part of like no this person knows how to reach for help and is interested in making the team effective and move forward um so being loud and dumb is a huge skill that i think is hard if the environment doesn't allow it if, it, if you have one of yeah. those, like, and I've seen these environments too, where it's like, oh, you know, people are going to talk smack if I don't know, if I come out and ask something, I'm like, well, I mean, that's our problem, not mine. I'm going to say, I don't know this so we can build cool things. Yeah, I think, um, I think that environment piece of it is so important, Stephen. And I think it's, it's such a two-way street, right? Learning how to ask for help, learning how to articulate when you're stuck, um, requires that you not be afraid not to know something because that's when the communication is going to break down like Lars is saying when people are kind of obfuscating like oh yeah I think it's fine like you know they're not ready to come out and say I'm stuck this is the blocker here's what I've tried here's what's not working Um, I think that becomes that's the prerequisite for being able to communicate when you're stuck is you can't be afraid to admit that you don't know something And in order for it to be true that you're not afraid to admit that you don't know something, the environment has to support that. And I think there's two pieces to that puzzle. It's absolutely, Stephen, what you just said, that you can't be a dick to someone. Can I say that on our podcast? Don't be a dick to someone if they don't know the answer to something or if they're stuck. You know, assure them and show them that it won't come up, you know, in their performance review or in your future interactions with them. But you, as that more senior engineer, as the manager, as the teacher, whatever, you yourself have to model the behavior of not being afraid when you don't know something. And I think it's easy to get really defensive when people bring questions to you because you're also afraid of not knowing the answer. I feel that way all the time. When people ask me a question, um, I'm afraid that I'm not going to know the answer to it. So I think being able to sit with that in that leadership position and expose when you also don't know something and show someone what you do when you're confronted with that, how you go about figuring it out with the help of your colleagues and your teammates. Um, I think 
it makes all the difference. And that's something that was really sort of beat into me as a teacher because, you know, you get up there in front of the room and you're sitting in front of 30 people that need to learn how to code to get jobs because they paid money and they're not working right now. Um, it's completely terrifying. And guess what? You really don't know the answer a lot of the time. I remember at one point I taught um, a front end course, like an evenings and weekend front end course with CSS and HTML. And yes, yeah, Stephen just made a face. You guys know me. I don't know any of that stuff. So that was a really big challenge for me um, and to what I tried to focus on in that period was less like, okay, well, how do I answer everyone's CSS questions, which spoiler alert, I can't. And how do I show them how we can learn this together? Um, and I hope that that was, you know, a good skill to model, but I, I feel that it's important, especially to do in your professional life, right? Maybe you're past that early stage of like being the person that has all the questions. Maybe you're now somebody that has some of the answers. Um, you still need to model that behavior of, of not being afraid when you don't know. Yeah, that, that modeling failure is huge. I always, every semester I would have one lecture. I want, I don't want, I want to say it's on purpose. It wasn't where everything just, <laughs> where things were yeah. just a dis, totally. some generator. Yeah. It was what happened to me once that I was teaching OAuth and like the Twitter API changed like the night before, like I practiced and rehearsed the night before. Oh God. So I'm in front of, this is one of my first classes ever. I'm in front of this classroom and I'm just like, Oh my God, this is off. Okay. I'm, I'm apologizing. It's just chaos, but it, it does two things. It humanizes you as sort of like a leader. Um, but it also shows them that like, Hey, things are going to break and this is normal. And this is how you kind of get around it. I think later on, I got more polished at making it look like, Hmm, let's see what's going on. Let's go into the source code and see stuff. But it was still like pure chaos. And I think that that's super important to model as well for like, again, if, if we're talking about that, making it so that people feel comfortable exposing that they don't know something or they're having a hard time with something that they quote unquote should know, which is the most dangerous concept in programming. I should know this, so I'm not going to ask about it. Um, they, those moments actually do help. Um, and I'm always looking for ways to appear incredibly talented, but also incredibly like lost and sort of like document my process so that my team knows that this is normal. You're going to, sometimes you're going to look like Houdini who just did something amazing. And other times you're going to look like, you know, you're, you're pushing a pull door or something. This is, this is how it is. Yeah, hundred percent. And then it's also good to recognize, like if, if you are in an environment where you can't ask questions or it's frowned upon, or, you know, your whole team is just nasty to you, that might be a good indicator that it's time to look for, you know, for work elsewhere. And there's, I mean, it's a, it's a great software engineering job market at the moment. So there are plenty of nice, you know, smaller startups to work for or bigger, uh, bigger companies to work for. So if you see that you're in a position where you can't ask questions, you're going to get, you know, you're going to, you're going to hear about your questions on a performance review or, you know, something silly like that it's maybe time to switch, uh, switch environments and, and go to somewhere where you can learn and you can uh, develop with the team because, you know, shocker or spoiler alert, you know, you're going to learn from other people and people are going to learn from you. So it's, it's good to seek out good environments to, to really hone your skills. Yeah. So that definitely echoes my, my experiences. Just that trust especially in teams go both ways i think for for example for consulting and trying to uh, make an impression with clients but also building sort of uh, building your career within a company it's it's really important to be aware of what impression you're making and sort of 
how do I build trust with different types of people? But it is not necessarily <laughs> the case that you can build trust in any environment and you probably shouldn't uh, if it's, if it's, for example, a, a pathological organization where, where questions are, are frowned upon. And as someone leading a team or as someone leading, leading a group, you definitely need to sort of open the floor to that. I, I've definitely seen the reactions from people I've uh, taught and trained where they seem, uh, they seem to relax visibly when I go hit the docs or stack overflow for something. It's just like, oh, oh, you do that too. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't keep the Elixir standard library in memory. I keep some of it in memory, but it's only the hot paths. It's like that. That's just a matter of repetition. Like memorizing things is not important. It's helpful sometimes. Much like, like there's so so many sort of mechanical types of skills that are useful as programmers, like being quick with keyboard shortcuts or typing fast. They're useful, but they're not game changers. They don't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's it, those are micro optimizations compared to compared to just learning to figure things out. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I mean, and, and to draw comparisons, maybe another industry. Uh, so I used to do a lot of uh, automobile repair back in my uh, my teenage years. And anytime I had a new car, I would get like the, the Haynes or the Helms manual. And that's like the docs for that car. So you know exactly, you know, what, what steps to take in order to take out, you know, hey, like uh, take out the transmission or something. So it's, I mean, this is in every industry. And once you've worked on maybe the same car a bunch of times, maybe you don't need the docs for that, that same car. But as soon as you switch from like a, you know, a Toyota to a BMW, you're going to need the docs. You're going to need the, you're going to need the, the manual. And it's just like that in programming. So you're going to, you're going to have to reference these publications or, or articles and, and, and find your way sometimes when you're stumbling. New language, new database, new infrastructure, new operating system, all, the, yeah. all of these change some things. And you need to yeah. get familiar every time. Yeah, it is a pretty good parlor trick to know like a lot of the I don't know, enumerable library or enum library off the top of your head. And it was a parlor trick you get when you teach a lot because you have to kind of like- Even loves know, the enum library. My fa Actually, the string like, You're sort of obsessed with enums and Elixir. Not in a bad way, but you just, you went real deep into like all the map access put in all that stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And uh, nothing was gained, <laughs> but- Well, I don't I know. <laughs> I, I got a good parlor trick out of it, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I think that there's I largely touched on a lot of things about like uh, perceiving, big people perceiving like you have it all together because you type well and you know things by memory. Um, there are some skills that I think are good to kind of like have. Like I, uh, you know, I read docs for fun um, because I'm just curious, like, oh, and then I try to think about like, well, how could I use this? How is this interesting? How could this be, um, you know, put into practice? Um but I'm weird. I'm a weird person who reads docs for fun, you know, me with a glass of Merlot and, you know, the, the live view documentation is a, a good time. But it, yeah, those parlor tricks definitely go, go a long way. And don't be, don't be fooled, dear listener, just because someone is really good at like, uh, you know, knowing the standard library doesn't mean they have it all together. They also struggle.
I want to draw out one thing that you said that, you know, there are some skills that are good to develop, you know, and I think that this sort of gets back to our conversation around learning how to learn, learning how to sit with discomfort. I think another skill that serves you really well um, in any stage of your professional programming journey is communication skill. Uh, if you can articulate your thinking out loud, if you can, like Lars was saying, really explain and aware yourself why what you've tried, if you can sharpen and try to hone some of those writing skills, especially as more and more of us are moving into these remote roles where things are happening asynchronously, you know, things are happening in documentation, in PRs that document design decisions, et cetera, in, in GitHub issues or pivotal tickets or what have you. Um, if you can focus a little bit on some of those skills that I think traditionally might've been seen as like not really essential to your success as a programmer, I think actually conversely, I've seen people really skyrocket in terms of their professional development, in terms of their acceleration of their career growth, especially folks who are coming from those non-traditional non-tech backgrounds where maybe they did have more of an opportunity to hone some of those communication skills. Um, so I think that's another, I don't wanna say it's low hanging fruit. Like if that's a challenge for you, it's a challenge and I wanna give that it's due, but you know, instead of saying, okay, how do I go out and learn everything that there is to know about programming plus everything about computer science so that I can, you know, get my next job or get my promotion, maybe think about the skills that you might be overlooking or thinking of as not critical or super relevant, um, communication, reading, writing, talking, and, and think about focusing on those a little bit as well. Yeah. So on the question of what language should I, I really focus on and learn like English, really. It's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, also, it's like the most, you know, or us, but English. No, but. Or whatever that, your that actually communication is professionally. <laughs> no, I, I will say good English skills translates to sort of developer leverage in any country, in my experience. Like I, I speak to a fair yeah. bit of especially European developers. And I'm just absolutely painfully aware that if you have trouble with language, it's going to dampen things for you. It's going to be a hurdle unless you work strictly in a native tongue sort of organization. Just being able to express your ideas, thoughts, asking for help in constructive ways, expressing your needs effectively in English is super useful. But also if you want to reach out to a community, if you want to participate in open source, if you want to do many of those things that sort of bring status in the developer space, like, oh, blogging or uh, speaking on a podcast, <laughs> forbid. Uh, then like English, super, super important. Uh, in a crowd like this, I'm, I'm a bit self-aware of my English, uh, but overall I do fine. Like I, I, I'm good. I'm not worried about my English, but it's a super, super uh, fortunate skill to have. And I haven't like, like anything I know how to do. It's not something I've sort of intentionally went for and like, oh, this is what I want to learn. It's just been a desire path. It's like, I like writing. I like speaking, uh, especially like writing and through, and also ingesting a lot of media culture, uh, that kind of thing. And just building a, a sense of the language. That's 
that's been it for me. So I can't really advise people like how to, how to get good at English aside from do it a lot. And I think that's also sort of same for programming, same for communication, same for finding a good and productive way of doing things, same for uh, teamwork and collaboration, same for making a good impression. Like all of these just require repetition. And the first reps of anything is going to be discomfort and pain. If you've ever been to the gym, this is the truth. Like nothing starts out smooth, essentially. And if you had the good fortune of trying to learn it in your teens, you might not have noticed how uncomfortable it was because teens are weird. But if you're, if you're learning it now or tackling it at a, at a higher age, you're probably going to be very aware that you're sort of putting yourself out there. But the more you put yourself out there, the less uncomfortable it becomes and the more competent you become. It's all about reps in my experience. So for communication, for anything. Uh, but up. communication that's is, the is like a up. superpower in, in software. So I think that's, uh, that's actually a really nice note to end it on. And if I can just sum up a little bit, I think to answer some of the questions that I think you wanted to pose to us, Lars, which is broadly speaking, you know, advice for folks that are earlier on in their career who are wanting to learn how to become a quote professional programmer. It's, it's less about casting this extraordinarily wide net and learning all of the technical skills you could conceive of. And it's, it's focusing on learning how to learn, you know, sitting with you, maybe even seeking out that discomfort, understanding that it never really goes away and focusing on the skills that you likely already have in some, some degree, right? The skill of asking for help, the skill of communicating. Um, these are all the things that I think have served at least me really well. I think that that's echoed uh, by some of what you all have said. And it's definitely skills that I've seen serve other people really well. Students that I've taught, you know, just other friends and colleagues. So um, yeah, whether you're learning Elixir, which you definitely should. Otherwise, I guess, why are you listening to our podcast? or embarking on some other new journey. Uh, I think that's the takeaway that we want to leave you all with. So thank you, Lars. This was, I mean, one of the best conversation topics I think we've introduced. I absolutely love talking about this stuff. So thanks for bringing it up. Thanks for sharing your experiences, Alex and Steven. A big shout out to our sponsors, as always, Grazia. We thank you, Career Fuel for Programmers. Listeners, if you haven't checked them out yet, there is some great and exciting content coming up uh, on live book in particular that I know I am looking forward to. So go and give it a shot. And other than that, we will catch you guys next time on Beam Radio. This one was so fun. I loved this. This is awesome. I'm glad it turned out. This nice. Good. <laughs>